1: Coming up on today's show, some good news to report when it comes to opioid-related deaths in our province. They're down. We need to come up with a plan. One, drug shortages. We need a national plan to deal with that. And international disaster responders are some of the best in the world that work in our country. And what's hydrogen? How does it work? Why is it the way to go? We'll find out. We got some good news on the opioid overdose story. Now, it's still a dire situation. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. But we are definitely seeing some signs of improvement. According to the province, opioid overdose deaths in the month of June were down 44% from the peak that was recorded last November. Now, still... We had 98 people die in the month of June, so it's it's not a problem that has been solved by any means, but perhaps, maybe, just maybe, after years and years and years of steady increases, we're starting to see some change. Can we get that far down the road? I'm not sure, but we'll find out with Dr. Robert Tange, who is the co-lead of the Rapid Access Addiction Medicine Community Program, clinical assistant professor in the Departments of Psychiatry and Surgery at the University of Calgary. Uh, he's our go-to addictions doc. Uh, Dr. Tange, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. Thanks, Shay. Appreciate being here. When we talk about this, I mean, we're we're seeing these numbers and, and, and I mean, I guess the headline here has to be, no matter what else we can get into in a minute or two, this is positive, right, to see this kind of reduction. That's some really good news.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, even little wins should be celebrated and yeah. how difficult it's been over the last uh, several years, especially the last two years over the pandemic. but. We've got six straight months of uh, being down from the peak in uh, December Jan- December, and, and November. So, you know, we, we've seen a reduction. We've kind of kept it down there. Are we still down to where we need to be? No, but, you know, to be down um, kind of 44% from our highest level and, um, you know, still seeing some reductions from uh, year to year, we're, we're
1: getting that. Do we know why? Is it too early to say why?
2: I think so. I I think there's, look, I think we make mistakes in trying to say one specific program changed everything. Right. Uh, I think it's investment into several different programs from uh, all the way from harm reduction, where access points can be, uh, up to the uh, access points to inpatient treatments, to walk-in treatments, to, uh, well, let's face it, uh, buprenorphine. You know, physicians across the country have been banging the drums about access, access, access yeah. for a decade, and, and we're here.
1: And, you know, and like you say, we and every time we talk, we, we, we bring up the point that all of these things have a role to play, right? Pointing to one would be a mistake because all of them working together is sort of the answer.
2: Right. We, uh, we don't evaluate a puzzle by looking at one piece. We build it, then we look at it and you know you need a system of care and that's what we're seeing built uh is uh you know slowly over you know several years and and uh, several different leadership groups uh we've gotten to see a system starting to come together and uh that system is what needs to be evaluated is the whole process. Right.
1: When you take a look at what we're doing here, in, uh, you know, the, the provincial government's focus, of course, has been recovery, which, as we say, is, is an important part of this. There's no question. You take a look at our neighbor in B.C., they've been more focused on harm reduction and they're also seeing big drops. So is there something going on within the drug using community that could also be playing a role? We know toxic supply was an issue. The pandemic caused a spike. So could there just be environmental things aside from the programs that are in place that could be causing a big of this change at least?
2: Yeah, for sure. I I think one of the key differences is we had two public health messages. One public health message said, uh, please don't use a loan, please go to a a harm reduction facility, Um, you know, and really that that whole concept of a harm reduction public uh, health message. The second public health message was the COVID message, stay home, stay away from other people, uh, those contradicted each other, and so uh, people who use drugs and people who suffer with addiction are the ones that really were forgotten in that mess. And uh, when we look at the outcomes of COVID, I think the the historical documents are going to show us the the most. Fragile uh, populations have been um, uh, our most vulnerable, which are elderly from COVID and uh, young people from overdosing from uh, substances.
1: Interesting, okay, and we're seeing some some progress in those areas. I mean, what do we need to do next to not only maintain this, but to build upon it, Doctor?
2: Yeah, well, when we remove one of those public health messages, we get back to that harm reduction public health message. Yeah. Don't use alone. Uh, Get to one of the harm reduction facilities. Uh, we've we've published on this before. The more people use these facilities, uh, the less chance of people dying. Uh, we saw that before the pandemic and we saw some reductions happening. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, the best way to break down stigma is it's okay to ask for help. And in Alberta, we're getting there. Um, you can go to an emergency department and you can be initiated on uh, Suboxone. Uh, you can get arrested, which hopefully you don't try to get arrested, but... Uh, if you're struggling with opioids, you can be initiated right at Central Booking. And In fact, uh, over a 1,000 people have been initiated on opioid treatment um, during booking. Um, okay, hang on, hang on. In- when did that yeah. start? Uh, that started, oh boy, I would say about a year ago or so in an initiative that was cross-ministerial between justice and health and addiction and mental health.
1: Now, when you talk about get initiated onto opioid treatment, you're talking about, like you said, suboxone, methadone, yes. I mean, these kind of things?
2: Yes, and then you've got your virtual opioid dependency program, which really allows people to pick up the phone at any given time uh, and get started on treatment. Um, a network of publicly funded clinics across the province. Uh, the, the community addiction program in, in Calgary, where you can just walk in and get treatment. Um, you know, treatment is now accessible and available no matter where you're coming from. And that has not been the case and and continues not to be the case almost in the entire country.
1: Wow. Okay. So like you said, access, 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 right? That's where it starts.
2: Yeah, and we still have a lot of work to do. Um, We still have a lot more access points. We still need more uh, treatment programs. Uh, I think it'll be interesting to see how the one-year... uh, recovery treatment programs uh, look. So there'll be uh, several coming up. And, uh, these programs are going to be free treatment for an entire inpatient year. Uh, so, you know, there's just so many great things coming along. And um, to celebrate a small victory, like a reduction in people dying, and that's no small victory. Sure. That's less people dying. That's a huge win, uh, and so, you know, who knows which way is the right way. It's a matter of uh, keeping the pedal to the metal and actually seeing health care dollars being spent on addiction. If you spend 1% of your healthcare budget on addiction, well, that's what you should expect for an outcome.
1: Absolutely. We will celebrate this victory for sure. Uh, Dr. Tangay, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us.
2: Absolutely. Thanks a lot.
1: You bet. That's Dr. Robert Tangay, who, um, I mean, I could go through his uh, bona fides for a long time, he's our go-to addictions doc. He's uh, he's the co-lead of the Rapid Access Addiction Medicine Community Program. He's a prof. He works in addictions each and every day. Uh, he's the provincial medical lead on opioid dependency training in the Alberta Addiction Education Sessions. Um, this is his world. This is where he lives. This is where he operates. So we always, always appreciate his insight. And like he said, bottom line, right? 98 people died in the month of June um, in Alberta. Tragic. Absolutely. And that means that there is still a lot of work left to be done on this file to be sure. But like he said, you need to celebrate the victories when they come along. And if you're seeing 44% um, less or a reduction of 44% in terms of deaths from November to June, Yeah, like he said, okay, we're not going to get ahead of ourselves and say it's this program or that program that's causing it. It doesn't matter. I mean, it's going to be, we've said this from the very beginning when it comes to the opioid epidemic. It's not going to be one thing. It is a bunch of different components that come together. And if they all work
0: together. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
2: Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology.
1: kids, you've probably seen this in terms of it's hitting you in the face right now with trying to find children's Advil or children's Tylenol. Massive shortages of that. And I mean, once it gets to that level, it's a really big concern. But shortages in medication is something that come and go in our country and affect different kinds of medications over uh, different periods of time. And uh, there's a The Canadian Medical Association Journal coming out with a report this week saying, you know, we need a strategy. We've got to come up with some sort of a national program to deal with these drug shortages in our country. Uh, We're far too reliant on imports from other countries for our medication. We don't do anything domestically or very little, I should say. Um, and these shortages happen, and they're going to continue to happen, and we, need, we really don't have a plan. So let's let's develop one. To tell us about the report, we have Dr. Shu Lee joining us. He's one of the article's co-authors, professor emeritus at the University of Toronto, and an honorary staff physician at Mount Sinai Hospital. Dr. Lee, thank you for your time. I appreciate you joining us. Thank you, Shea. So when we take a look at this, I mean, let's just start right there. We... Um, This problem, like I said, we hear about the Advil and the Tylenol and that sort of, oh my goodness. But these drug shortages, this is nothing new. This is something we face in this country quite regularly, right?
3: Yes. In fact, this is a problem that goes back, you know, at least a decade and if not more. And it has been gradually worsening over time. I know in the public, um, people get exposed to it when there's shortage of tourist Tylenol, yeah. or unless you're buying a particular drug and you happen to be looking for it and it's not there. But in fact, in the healthcare system, doctors, nurses, and pharmacists have all been witnessing this for quite some time. And uh, they've had trouble trying to find drugs Uh so they sometimes would prescribe a drug and find it's not available, and then they would have to resort to a second-line drug. Procedures have, would have to be postponed because the drug is not available uh, for that particular procedure, and so on. So, And then pharmacists have to go around trying to source for drugs when they are short of it uh, and spend a lot of time trying to find the drugs as opposed to dispensing the drugs. So it has been a problem for some time. <laughs>
1: And, you know, like you say, when it gets to the level of children's Advil or children's Tylenol, a lot of people sit up and notice. um, But how widespread has it been before? Is it sort of one drug here or there, or is it a large number of drugs at any time that are in
3: short supply? In fact, it is quite a large number. So even before COVID, so COVID is an unusual time because of the circumstances. But even before COVID, in 2017 and 2018, one quarter of all the pharmaceuticals used in Canada experienced shortages. One quarter? One quarter.
1: Okay, let's see if we can identify some of the reasons. First of all, we don't produce, we're we're almost entirely reliant on imports for medication, correct?
3: That's correct. 93% of all the drugs used in Canada are imported. And that's the big problem.
1: And we know what happens with supply chains and with shipping and with all the rest of these sorts of things. The fact when you're reliant on importation like that, it can go south in a hurry.
3: Exactly. So under the best of circumstances, even before COVID, we were experiencing a lot of shortages. And when COVID struck, of course, it just brought everything to a head because, you know, first of all, supply chain started running into problems. Suppliers were not manufacturing. Factories were closed. People were not working. You know, transportation was stalled, etc. And then on top of that, you've got countries prioritizing their ne- own needs for themselves. So when countries prioritize their own needs for themselves, well, their manufacturers cannot export to us. So that even made the the problem even worse. So, you know, uh, we felt that this was a a wake-up call, that, you know, we really need to do something about this, because even without a crisis, we are already uh, having problems. And then when a crisis happens, it is really bad.
1: Yeah, exactly. We just don't have any margin there. Now, in the article, in the report that you put together, you come up with a list of things we need to do to try and make sure that we're in a better position to handle these kinds of situations. And it all starts with a list, right? We need to identify which drugs uh, we need to focus on. Exactly.
3: You know, I mean, it's not that difficult to come up with a list. All you have to do is figure out which are the things that people really need and that if we do not have, a lot of people are going to suffer. For example, insulin. If you suddenly run short of insulin, there are thousands of diabetics who are going to die right away. You know, it's not something that you can say, oh, let's wait next month to to get the supply. It doesn't happen that way. So we can come up with a list of of things that we need uh, that are urgent and that are important and that we need to have all the time. So the United States, when COVID struck, the FDA immediately did that. And they came up with a list of 227 items that the United States must have. And then they put into place a series of steps to try and address that so to ensure a secure drug supply. And we haven't done that. So that's the first thing that we need to do.
4: Mm -hmm.
1: And would that list break down in terms of, okay, these are the drugs that we need to have, but these ones we really need to be focused on because uh, supply is pretty short
3: at the best of times? Exactly. So we need to have, what are the essential medications that we must have in this country? The second thing is, which are the ones that are potentially most vulnerable? And so we need to have that list, too. So, for example, if a drug is manufactured by only one manufacturer or two manufacturers in the world, well, that's a very vulnerable supply. Because if that one manufacturer, for whatever reason, is unable to ship to us, then we are in deep trouble. So we have to make sure that we have secure supplies of these drugs. And we need to identify which are these drugs um, that have got only one or two manufacturers and therefore ensure that the supply chain there is strong. Yeah, and have a backup plan
1: if something goes wrong.
3: Exactly. So when it comes to a backup plan, there are short and long-term things that we can do. In the short term, 93% of all our drugs are imported, our our pharmaceuticals are imported. So we must have a plan to stockpile them because it's not realistic to say, okay, tomorrow we're going to manufacture all of them. Well, that isn't going to happen. So we need to be able to stockpile them. So we have something called the NESS, a National Emergency Strategic Stockpile, uh, where the government uh, stockpiles things that are considered emergency items uh, for disasters, whatever. But the trouble was when COVID came, we realized that, in fact, that stockpile did not contain many of the things that are, in fact, fact, uh, essential medications or supplies in this country, and that if they were there, uh, they were in very short supply. We didn't even have a proper inventory list. So, you know, we need to know, first of all, what do we have? Where do we have them? Are they updated? What is the expiry date? Who is uh, holding those supplies? How do we get them? And so on. So that we know uh, when we need them, where to find them. And also keep it updated so that we know when we need to resupply or restock, etc. So we need to make sure that we have, first, a list. Secondly, we need an inventory list of what we have. And then the third thing is that we need to make sure that we have it in the stockpile. So we need to ha- have a plan for what we're going to stockpile and where it's going to be stockpiled. And there are different ways of doing that. One way is the NESS, to make sure that all these items are in the NESS. But there are also other options. For example, Australia requires that all their suppliers stockpile six, uh, six months' worth of medications oh. so that they never run out of any medications. All suppliers must have six months' worth of medications in their stockpile. So that way they pass on the stockpiling to the suppliers so that it is not done by the government but by the industry. That's another way of doing it. But whichever option we choose, uh, we must have a way of stockpiling these items so that they are there when we need them.
1: Yeah, and there's a bit of a cushion built into the system. That makes great sense. What about producing it here? Is there a way that we we can ramp up that production that your report touches on?
3: I think in the long term, that is the way that we have to go because it's one thing to stockpile. But if a crisis lasts more than six months, then what do we do? Yeah, <laughs> uh, And so on. You know, So there are many reasons why we need to do that. And also for our own pharmaceutical industry, why aren't we producing? I think we need to, to take a look at that. So the fact that 93% of our pharmaceuticals are imported is a problem. Um, so the government can do many steps to ensure that our pharmaceuticals a sector is in fact strong and viable and you know commercially productive and can compete on on the world stage. Um so there are a number ways of doing that. One is the creation of a crown corporation, and we've done that in the past, you know, even Air Canada was once upon a time a crown corporation before it came privatized.
1: Sure. Yeah, 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 it yeah. can
3: be done. So yeah. we could create a crown corporation to manufacture essential drugs so that uh, uh, we have a, a a stable supply of them. And we could also ensure, Um, that they can be scaled up in times of need. So that's one way to go. Another way is to subsidize our uh, manufacturers. For example, we do have some manufacturers and we will tell them, okay, we want you to manufacture these particular items because these are essential drugs. And uh, because the volumes may not be sufficient that you can compete on the world stage, we're going to subsidize a certain amount. So instead of spending the money on the stockpile, you spend the money on the subsidy to ensure that these supplies are there. So that's another way. Um, Another way is to follow the example that the United States did with Civica. And what that is, is that it's a non-profit consortium uh, that then goes out and subcontracts with manufacturers to produce them or they manufacture it themselves. But either way, we have to have a way of manufacturing so that essential item supplies uh, are stable and safe in this country.
1: Yeah, and, and the key no. word there is essential, doctor. I mean, that, okay. that that's the thing, right? It's not like it's – people will say, well, leave it to the free market. Okay, but the, these are things that can be life and death.
3: Exactly. So leave it to the free market, yes, that's fine. But if you don't have insulin tomorrow and you're diabetic, well, that's a problem. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yes. Well, I'm wondering, um, just before I let you go, what about pharmacists? I mean, I, I know we have pharmacists that, that can – Probably step in, like we, we were doing some stories locally on the um, children's Tylenol shortage situation, and and the pharmacist was saying, well, you know what, we're a com- compounding pharmacy, we can make it for you, but you're going to have to go to your doctor first and get a prescription, and then we'll be able to help you out. I mean, is there a way to make it easier for pharmacists who have the education and training to step in and you know find the replacement that they know is there, but they can't give you unless you get a prescription for it?
3: Yes. So there's two, two parts to that. One is, um, can the pharmacists help with compounding the materials? Absolutely. I think that uh, when a certain drug is in short supply, the pharmacists can actually help to compound some of these medications. Not all, some of them medications. Mm-hmm. But there's another problem, which is that first they must have the ingredients to compound it with. Sure. Yeah. So those ingredients are what we call active pharmaceutical ingredients, so APIs. In other words, without those ingredients, you can't compound anything. You, you need the ingredients. Unfortunately, most of these ingredients are now, been the the manufacturer used to be in Canada, United States, etc., but they've been shifted to low-cost countries like China and India. So most of these APIs are now produced in those countries. So even if you had people who can compound them, but you don't have the ingredients, you can make it, right? So we have have a way of either stockpiling these active ingredients or making them ourselves. And the reason they have gone to the low-cost countries is, of course, they can make it in bulk and cheaper. But there are new technologies coming. Uh, for example, at the University of Montreal, there are uh, uh, researchers researching flow technology that can now actually make these ingredients cheaper than the low-cost countries can make, and at higher quality and less uh, environmental pollution and all that. You know, okay. So these are the kinds of technologies that we need to be investing in. In other words, the government needs to be investing in these technologies and ensuring that they be become uh, used uh, to produce these uh, uh, ingredients. So that's the way that we can use innovation to try and improve the things that we have problems with. And it solves not only the p- problem of production and supplies, but it also can create a vital industry for this country that is uh, employs people, yeah. that creates money, and so on. And, and so provides an also- essential product. Absolutely.
1: Dr. Lee, uh, I appreciate not only uh, illustrating the problem, but coming forward with uh, a long list of ways to address it. It's fantastic. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. That's Dr. Uh, Shu Lee, who is uh, one of the authors of this report that uh, was in the Canadian Medi- Medical Association Journal, talking about, you know what, we got to have a strategy. I mean, he laid it out pretty clearly for us, didn't he? going to have a conversation right now that, You know, if you think about it, fortunately, when it comes to major, major, catastrophic national disasters, Canada's been pretty fortunate. Not to say we haven't had them. Of course we have. You know, you you can talk about the wildfires in BC. You can talk about uh, Lac Megantic in Quebec. There's been there's been major, major catastrophes uh, in Canada, but nothing that rises to the level of, I don't know, tsunamis and earthquakes and and things like that, right? But when those things do happen around the world, there's a large contingent of Canadians that are involved in disaster relief efforts we're we're pretty good at it and pretty experienced but none of that expertise is sort of quantified categorized you know tracked within Canada if, God forbid, we should ever need it, I don't even know if we know where to go. And that's the point being made by our next guest, Linda Redwood-Campbell, who is a professor and a family physician at the Department of Family Medicine at McMaster University. Um, Linda, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate your time.
5: Good morning. Thank you very much, Jay, for having me.
1: So we'll get to that in just a second. First of all, though, we really do, When you, and you, you're, you're sort of front and center in this, and along with other uh, experts, In responding to international events, right? Canada has a long, rich history here.
5: Canada does have indeed a very long, rich history. um, And I think a lot of Canadians actually aren't aware of that. Um, There's a lot of um, international expertise that we as Canadians actually have. But I think we could probably utilize better here in Canada.
1: What about you personally? Tell us about some of your experiences and, and the responses you've been a part of.
5: Um, Oh, my goodness. So I've been working in uh, disaster response for over 25 years, Um, maybe a little bit longer than that even. And uh, I probably responded to about 35 or so international disasters. So, you know, I I could name them all. Tsunamis, uh, the big tsunami in Asia, uh, earthquakes in Pakistan. I've been to Haiti multiple times for various different things, unfortunately. Uh, Countries like Haiti tend to get, um, you know, really affected by particularly natural disasters, Um, but I've had many experiences around the world, in most continents, actually.
1: The experience that you gain, I mean, that first hand on the ground involved in the relief effort, that kind of experience can't be picked up any other way, right? I mean, that experience that you have is invaluable.
5: Absolutely. And and, uh, one of the things that we we did, Shay, was we did a research study that was actually published this year in the Canadian Medical Association Journal, and we actually went to Canadians who were working on these teams and said, you know, how can lessons from the field help us in Canada? And one of the responses that we got back was, this is real-life training that we almost never have in Canada. So that we have this experience, we come back to Canada, but we're not really, you know, used or we don't utilize our skills often when we, when, when we come back. So those are some of the findings that we found uh, with the, the research that we conducted.
1: Um, and do we have any idea of, you know, obviously that you're not alone, there's a lot of people involved in this, but as a country, like you say, do we really sort of keep track of this and have even, you know, an inventory of the skills we have available within Canada?
5: I would say we don't do that very well at all. Yeah. Uh- no, I, I would say the answer would be no. I mean, certainly there's different organizations that do this kind of work, and the, the organization that I'm most comfortable or aware of is the Canadian Red Cross International Operations, because that's personally the one that I've worked with the most. Uh, there are other organizations also that do international work, but, you know, each organization knows, but how do you take all of that and bring it back to the expertise in Canada is always the question. And I, I think that... Um, even having uh, your catalog, cataloging the skills and experience and developing a database, either at the federal level, provincially or municipally, uh, to try to determine who are these people we can approach when we, and I say when we have a disaster in Canada, because it's just a matter of time. We're having disasters in Canada all the time. You've mentioned the, you know, the wildfires, certainly flooding, ice storms. Uh, The train derailment in Lac-Mégantic, there's lots of options and experiences that we can look back on in Canada.
1: So like you say, we've got the Red Cross and they respond to all of these and and do wonderful work. Um, But what would you like to see, uh, like you say, government doesn't really seem to be keeping track of this. Where do we start? How do we sort of get a better handle on this?
5: The governments at different levels should be communicating with these organizations that do the international work and say, how, how can we, you know, move forward? How can we utilize, you know, the resources that we have in Canada when another event happens? Um, and I think it's a dialogue that needs to start, increasing the, the awareness that, that, in fact, we have this expertise, but also how do you pull all these pieces together and, and starting a dialogue with different levels of government, I think is a really good start. I know, I know the Red Cross has been engaged with the government at different levels, and they are starting to encourage that conversation, but I actually think it needs to go much further than it's, it's gone, because it, it makes me uh, sad to think that I know that there are people that work on our teams that aren't necessarily doctors or nurses. They might be logisticians or engineers or other experts, experts who aren't asked there for their expertise when something happens in Canada.
1: That's the question, um, Doctor, in terms of, okay, let's say, God forbid, we had some sort of catastrophe in Alberta this weekend, whatever it may be. Um, Is there... How would you, for example, if we if we desperately need your expertise and your experience in this field, how would we know that you're the person to contact? Is there any, does the Red Cross have, a, is there a list that we can go to at all? Not easily, no. I so, mean, the
5: Red Cross certainly has um, the international operations. They certainly know who's on their team yeah. and what there is. But it's also trying to think about how do we, uh, bring together the international perspective and our domestic perspectives because often they're siloed very differently. Um, but that's a really good example, Shay, of, of what, you know, there would be many, many steps that would need to happen for that link to happen. And I think we could do a better job of, of you know, maintaining databases to be able to say, hey, this person's a security expert. Yeah. Let's call, you know, to, to be an expert in this particular situation.
1: It almost seems like an absolute no-brainer. It's hard to believe that this isn't in place already, you know? Mm -hmm, mm
5: -hmm. And I know colleagues uh, that I've worked with felt um, during even the pandemic that they weren't called upon and thinking why I've worked in, I don't mean me personally, but other people have worked in, you know, many, many epidemics, pandemics before and with lots of expertise and they're not being called upon. So this is what sort of I'm really hoping is that we we can actually... Yes, when we do this international work, we all have, quote, day jobs, uh, you know, normally, but we should really be on rosters that can harness that expertise when we need it.
1: Well, I've got you. Let me ask, what's that like? Like you say, you've responded to dozens of these, um, you know, and and you're, I mean, you've got all kinds of things going on with your own practice and a professor and all these sorts of things. So what's it like when there is a massive international catastrophe and you know that you can be of service and you want to be involved? How how does that process work? What's it like when that call comes?
5: So, the you it's, it's happened so many times I have to think about what, every time it's it's this call that comes to say are you available yeah and Oh, and I have to do a, sh- a huge shout-out to my team at work at my current job, that my colleagues and friends that support the work that I do. Because after that call comes, I have to figure out, you know, do I have capacity to go? Are there enough doctors that can help to cover those kinds of things? And um, we have to remember that, you know, when I get called, it's the team that stays, too, that's also contributing to it. I, it's, it moves very, very quickly, You know, I have to ensure that my work is here in Canada is covered. I have to make sure that my family life is covered. I have to then start really thinking about what is the context of this disaster and what are the things that I need to be thinking about in terms of my role in that context. Um, Different disasters, different types of disasters. We know from a health perspective, we expect different types of injuries or illnesses based on the type of disaster it is. So you go in with a different mindset depending on you know what type of disaster it is. So all of these things are running through my brain as I think about, okay, we need to do this response and this is what it's gonna look like.
1: It's, a, it's an amazing um, professional life to have for sure. And, and we appreciate it so much. Uh, Doctor, thank you for joining us today, I appreciate it.
5: Thank you very much, have a great day.
1: You too. That is uh, Linda Renwood-Campbell, a professor and a family physician, Department of Family Medicine, McMaster University. If you're
4: struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. plushcare.com/weightloss.
3: This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com.
1: Lots to talk this week about hydrogen, right? You've been following the stories. Um, going back to uh, the visit by the German Chancellor to our country, meeting with our Prime Minister, trying to address the massive crisis that they're facing in Europe when it comes to energy. We'll talk about that in a minute. You will not believe the costs and what they're worried about heading into the winter months there. Nonetheless, they're in Canada signing a deal on a hydrogen energy plan for a plant that hasn't even been built yet, um, it's interesting. But hydrogen, 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 and not just hydrogen, but green hydrogen. Um, there's it, Some kinds of hydrogen are more desirable than others. And um, it's basically, as we said, Europe trying to come up with ways to replace energy uh, now that they're really worried about natural gas supplies from Russia for a very good reason, cold winter months looming. So hydrogen is said to be the future of energy. How? How does it work? What is it? We're going to find out. We're going to get the details. Bit of a crash course here from Dr. Murray Thompson, who is a professor in the Department of Mechanical and Industrial Engineering at the University of Toronto and the Chief Science Officer at Aurora Hydrogen. Uh, Dr. Thompson, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us.
4: Thank you. Yes, thanks for the... uh invitation.
1: I think there's a bit of a learning curve for a lot of us involved here. We all know what hydrogen is. It's, you know, the most abundant element, uh, uh, but it's not readily available on its own, right? You have to produce the hydrogen that can be used for energy. Just explain to us what the process is and what hydrogen energy is.
4: Yeah, so so hydrogen is not available in the as a, as a raw energy source, it's an energy carrier, so you have to make it with some other source of energy. Um, most hydrogen in Canada, in particular in, in, uh, in, um, in, in Alberta, is made from natural gas, typically using called steam methane reforming. So they take, they take um, uh, natural gas or methane and they react it with water and steam and then um, they make hydrogen and carbon dioxide. So that's that's what most hydrogen in Canada comes from. But as you said, you were talking about green hydrogen. Typically, that means electrolysis. So yeah, there's another way you can do it is take electricity and you can split the hydrogen and oxygen in with, with, from water.
1: So bottom line is isolating the hydrogen on its own, which can then be burned as a fuel, correct?
4: Yes, yes. So so when you burn it as a fuel, there's obviously no CO2 emissions, yep, yep. greenhouse gas emissions, because it's just, it's just uh, water vapor coming off.
1: Okay, so the different ways of producing that. Now, that's how we get into the different classifications, right? When we hear about green hydrogen, blue hydrogen, gray hydrogen, that's all based on how you produce the pure hydrogen.
4: Yeah, and, and in general, people are moving away from the colors, as they call it, um, okay. because because um, because it's not necessarily very helpful. For instance, um, if you make, if you have so-called green hydrogen, electrolysis from, a coal fi- from electricity made from a coal-fired power plant, you'd actually have high CO2 emissions, right? So, so generally, the, the, both government regulations and generally people are going towards carbon intensity. So what they do is they look at the whole life cycle of the energy from my, creating the raw res- from the raw resources all the way to the end use, and they say, what are the CO2 emissions over the life of that Energy source, right? So, so, so they would take into a, so they so they, therefore you'd have to take into into consideration, for instance, with with uh, with uh, electrolysis or green hydrogen. You have to say, well, where did the electricity come from? Was that right. renewable electricity? Was that or was that a coal-fired power plant?
1: Which is why when we take a look at the deal that was signed this week uh, and the emphasis on the quote-unquote green hydrogen, um, the reason there is because it's done through wind. Right? And the electrolysis yeah. is wind powered, so the carbon intensity of that is as good as it gets, correct?
4: Probably, yes. Yeah. It, but would, be, ridiculously it would be very low. expensive. Yes, that's the challenge. So typically, um, uh, you know, um, making hydrogen with electrolysis, so that's the green hydrogen, right? Is, um, is, it depends, but roughly three times more expensive than making it with natural gas. I, it depends where you are and the cost of electricity and all sorts of other things, but just as it's definitely multiples of what it would take to make hydrogen from natural gas.
1: Right. Okay. So, I mean, it's the, the most desirable for the people that are really engaged in green energy, but it is also the most expensive. Now, what we're doing here in Canada, like yeah. we said, this electrolysis plant on the Maritimes is still off in the future. It hasn't even been built. What ha- is happening, yeah. I mean, we've already got a multi-billion dollar industry in Canada, right? Primarily based no, around yeah, the natural yeah. gas
4: primarily located in Alberta actually.
1: Yeah. Now when we talk about natural gas, it slides down on the scale because now you're using fossil fuels. But you can you can mitigate some of the environmental concern by carbon sequestration and that, that changes the classification of the hydrogen you produce. How does that work?
4: Yeah, again it it, it all comes back to carbon intensity. So basically if you if you make you know, using a steam methane reforming you take the natural gas, you make the hydrogen, but you also make CO2. Now if you take that CO2 and you put it back underground, um, which is called carbon sequestration. Then, if you put it well enough, if you do a good job, and it, it'll stay down there for thousands of years. Um, essentially, there's no CO two, or there's only there's less CO two um, emitted to the atmosphere. So its carbon intensity would be better. So so yeah. So that's that's so um, so that's what for for in Alberta where they have access to depleted oil wells and stuff like that yeah. they can they can put the co2 back underground so yeah. just, I mean, there is another there's a th- another a third way to do it too which i can also get into
1: okay yeah i mean those are the two i'm aware of. what's the third one yeah
4: so that's the so Aurora hydrogen the company that that i'm a founder of co-founder of is based in based in edmonton alberta and it looks at something called methane pyrolysis, which a number of companies in, um, in North America and the world are looking at. And so what it does is a little bit different. What they do is they don't form CO2. They split the methane, and you get solid carbon and hydrogen. And the advantage there is you don't have carbon dioxide gas that you have to – Transport, pump down, and inject underground. You have a solid carbon, and you can either use that as a material, which is being done, say, by a company Monolith in the U.S., or you can you can bury it underground. You know, which we've done for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's very stable. Solid carbon is very stable. Um, so yeah, you can bury it underground and sequester it that way. So it's a different way of sequestering the carbon than. Sequestering CO two gotcha, okay. or bearing CO two. So yeah, so there's sort of three different ways that people are looking at. Um, and at all the end, the more expensive.
1: At the end of it, Doc, no matter how you produce it, how you come up with it, you end up with hydrogen. Now, some people are texting and I I know that hydrogen is extremely flammable and can be very, very dangerous. So when we talk about transportation of hydrogen, what goes into that? How simple is that? Do we have the mechanics necessary to do that? Or is this something we're also trying to, to build as we go here?
4: Well, this is the big challenge with the Newfoundland project to Germany is that transporting hydrogen is very difficult. It's a, it's a very low-density gas, probably one of the lowest-density gases of all. So you, so you can compress it um, to, you, at high pressure. Obviously, that takes a lot of energy, but, uh, but that's still a fairly large volume. So for longer distance, like if you wanted to go to Germany, you'd have to liquefy it. But to liquefy it, you have to go down to minus 250 degrees approximately. And uh, and so you're talking very cold, and so obviously very energy intensive. And and as you're shipping, there, obviously there's always heat transfer, right? So some of that, you're going to boil off some of the hydrogen. So you're going to lose some some of your, your hydrogen on the trip to uh, to Germany. And so, so it is very, it's, in the end, it comes down to it's expensive and energy intensive to ship hydrogen long distances. So... That's a that's a huge problem.
1: So, are we farther right, ahead? I mean, I mean, the, the question. I I know that they like to say that we're producing green hydrogen energy, and, but I mean, if you're talking about energy intensity in producing it, energy intensity in transporting it, all these sorts of things, are we any farther ahead, doctor?
4: Well, it it it's all supply and demand, right? So, yeah. so obviously, if, if you if you could, so if Germany is willing to, so, it's, so in the end, it's going to be pretty expensive. Hydrogen. It's going to be expensive to make it. It's going to be expensive to transport it. If Germany is willing to pay that price, you know, that's uh, you know, I mean, obviously, they think it's worth worth it, right?
2: Yeah. yeah. On the other
4: hand, your your is going to be competing against wind farms. In Germany, that can also make the hydrogen locally and don't have the transportation. So you know, so it's it's a competitive market. So so um, yeah, so so it all comes down to price in the end. Uh, so it's so it's what Newfoundland's doing is going to be clean energy, uh, but but it's going to be expensive.
1: Yeah, exactly, yeah. Okay, and um, a lot of people wondering, you know, being here in Alberta, we've been told that we're part of the transition and we already have yeah, so much yeah. of the skills in the infrastructure. How how does that transition work? I mean, people that are in the oil and gas sector, the facilities that we have, can they transition to hydrogen? How does that transition work?
4: Well, Alberta is the, the biggest hydrogen producer in Canada, and I believe it has some of the biggest hydrogen plants in the, in the whole world. So uh, Alberta definitely has a lot of... Uh, experience in, in expertise in this area um yeah so so and they and they in alberta also has the sort of the the old oil wells and stuff like that that hydrogen could be sequestered into and and those there's a there's work going on in both Saskatchewan and alberta to look into that so that's the that's using um so you make so make when you make the hydrogen you make co2 but then you inject it underground so that's that's alberta has a, a definite advantage there Alberta also has advantage of cheap natural gas, and uh, and also uh, an increasing amounts of renewable uh, electricity too. So Alberta has a lot of strengths in this area. Um, the challenge is always how to transport it. So so hydrogen is it's not an easy thing to transport. Um, theoretically, you could make hydrogen pipelines, but um, those don't exist currently. So it's uh, yeah. So so Alberta has a lot of advantages to making hydrogen um, but um, but yeah it's it's um, there's a it's, it's exp- it, there's a lot of costs involved in building out all that infrastructure but but it has Alberta has a great promise
1: is the prediction here doctor that you know you we keep talking about the cost and it's very expensive uh, but technology will adapt and the cost will eventually come down is that the hope is that the thinking
4: um, it definitely will to a certain extent i i think alberta with using natural gas um, as a feedstock um, has an advantage that it's much less expensive than electrolysis. So it's right, yeah. green hydrogen. So you're sort of, I guess you might call it. So in the, the blue hydrogen is much cheaper generally than the green hydrogen. So that's an advantage Alberta has that can make blue hydrogen. Um, and again, we want to get away from the colors, right? Right. It's carbon intensity. So exactly. if, 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 so if you can take natural gas and make and make hydrogen and not have a lot of co2 emissions over the life cycle of that fuel hey you're just you know that's great that's that that's that's good enough right so so i think sometimes people sort of say you know green is good blue is bad but but it's not really true it really depends on the carbon intensity and you have to prove that um you know you have to show that you can if you can make clean hydrogen whatever the process um that's, that's what counts, right? You would think, you would think,
1: yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh, Doctor, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us.
4: Great, thanks a lot.
1: Thank you so much. That's Dr. Murray Thompson, uh, who is a professor in the Department of Mechanical and Industrial Engineering at the University of Toronto and Chief Science Officer at Aurora Hydrogen. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.